0: I want to start out this morning um, just by posing just a few questions, kind of questions I was asking myself throughout the week. Um, so I want to start just by kind of inviting you to think through these questions. You, you don't have to answer them out loud. And all these questions are kind of the same in a way, but maybe worded a little bit differently. Uh, so I want to invite you to kind of think about these questions. First question is, do the ways of God, do the ways of God really lead to life? Do the ways of God really lead to life? Think about that. Do the ways of God really lead to life? Does, does obedience to God, does obedience to God really, really bear fruit? Think about that for a moment. Does obedience to God really bear fruit? Maybe another way of asking this would be, um, is it good news Is it good news that God delights in obedience? Is it good news that God delights in obedience? And on the surface, on the surface, I think we all kind of know the answer to that question, right? We know the answer to the test question. Um, Because one way or the other, I think that's kind of why we're all here this morning. Whether you believe in God and believe in his ways, or you're maybe curious about God and curious about God's ways, um, I think that's maybe why we're here in some way, shape, or form. We, we believe the answer to these questions is yes. But I think, I think this is a question we kind of find ourselves faced with day in and day out. Um, it's, not, it's not one of those questions that every moment of every day you find yourselves, okay, is God's way really best? Um, I don't come to every decision thinking that out loud. Okay, is God's way of doing things really the best way? But I think it is true that in our hearts, in the way that we live each and every day, we find ourselves asking this question. I think we find ourselves wrestling, wrestling with these questions. And we're gonna continue our story this morning. Uh, We're gonna continue our story and our journey with God, with Moses, with the Israelites in Numbers 20. And I wanna kinda catch us up real quick, uh, if it's your first time at Ethos, or if you haven't been able to be with us in this series. I want to kind of catch us up, so we're in about the ninth to tenth week as we've looked at Exodus, as we've looked at numbers, we're getting ready to look at Deuteronomy next week, and these are all books in the Old Testament, uh, so we've been tracking, we've been tracking the life of a man named Moses, and God chose Moses to bring his people out of slavery, uh, to bring his people, the Israelites, out of captivity. Uh, not only just bring them out of captivity, but he's charged Moses with bringing them from captivity, being delivered from slavery to, to dwell in the promised land, to dwell to dwell with God. And they weren't just delivered from slavery, they were delivered to dwell. And I think it's important for, for us to know that. But as we've studied this story, as we've looked at this story, we've kinda started to uncover this pattern, right? Uh, This pattern we've seen like over and over and over again. You, we've just seen God's faithfulness, God's goodness. And right after moments of God's faithfulness, right after moments of God's goodness, what do we then see? We see people who rebel. (laughs) We see people who doubt. We see people who fear. And then over and over and over again, you see Moses. And what does he do? He intercedes. He comes in between the people and God and he intercedes on their behalf. And then in turn, what happens? God is faithful once again to his promises. And over and over and over again, this is the pattern. This is the pattern that we've been seeing. And so I want us this morning to, to look at this story, to, to examine this story, because it's important to, to learn from history. And so we're gonna look at the story and then we're gonna to look to Jesus. We're going to look at the story, we're going to look to Jesus, and then we're going to come back around to this question we all kind of answered to ourselves at the beginning. So we're going to look at the story, we're going to look at Jesus, and we're going to come back around to the question. So let's read through this story together, Numbers chapter 20, starting in verse 1, and we're actually going to read it in pieces, we're not going to read all the way through. So i just ask you to bear with me, don't read ahead. Numbers 20, starting in verse 1, page 73. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. There, Miriam died and was buried. So if you remember from two weeks ago, I know this seems insignificant in in one way. You're like, okay, this is just the setting. But we actually find ourselves in the same general area that we were two weeks ago in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. It was from Kadesh that the Israelites sent out the 12 spies. So the spies had gone from this land to go see the promised land. And the spies come back, and if you remember from two weeks ago, there were two groups of people. There was the group of 10 spies. And these group of 10 spies, they came back, and they saw the promised land from this place of great fear. In fact, they said, there's there's no way that we're going to be able to take the promised land. There's no way that God's going to give us this promised land. So there's one group. The second group, a group of two people, they actually, uh, they actually have seen the hand of God and believed that the character and the promises of God were going to be true. And they actually said, Hey, let's go take this promised land. But because of the lack of faith of the ten, God says, okay, you know what, because you don't want this promised land, you're actually going to spend the next 40 years in the desert. So here they've been, the past 40 years, wandering in the same desert that we found ourselves two weeks ago. And so we find ourselves in the first month of the 39th year. Like, even though it's a few chapters later, we're actually towards the end of their wandering. And this older generation that God said would kind of pass away has pretty much passed away. And this younger generation is here. They're on the verge of this promise. We talked about it two weeks ago. They're on the verge of this promise that they literally have been waiting on for hundreds of years. And they find themselves in the first month of the last year. And God, he's kind of given them this redo. In this moment, in this story, he's kind of given them another chance, another opportunity Given them one more moment to say, hey, will you trust me? Will you obey me? And we're gonna see uh, how they respond. And I think it's important to just to note Miriam real quickly. We're not gonna track anything else with Miriam in this story, but the, the simple reverence with which her death is noted in this story, she was a leader among the Israelites. She was a prophetess among the Israelites. Uh, she actually led the Israelites in worship and song. And I just think it's really neat the way that um, the story just kind of notes, notes Miriam's death. So verses, verse 2, 2 through 5. Now there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Here we are again, it's deja vu. The people of God are lacking once again in the physical realm. Uh, This time, they're really focused on water. And in turn, their frustration kind of begins to rear its head. And I know it's easy for us to say, hey, are these silly Israelites? Um, these silly Israelites, like how could they be doing this again? And I just want to, like, us to realize for a moment, like being in the desert without water is a really bad place to be, right? Like being in the desert, being thirsty for water is a really bad, bad place to be. So like imagine this with me for a moment. You're thirsty. There's no water. Your Nalgene ran out like weeks ago. Your kids have no water. So you know your kids are whining. Your kids are complaining. Your livestock has no water. So like your dog is barking because his water bowl is empty. So all you're hearing is your kids whining and your dog barking. And you've just reached this place of frustration. So this is not, this is not a moment for us to sit here and judge. This is, I think, a moment for us to really learn from because I don't know about you but it takes far less in my circumstantial world for me to get to a place of frustration for me to get to a place of whining but we have the advantage of reading this story that happened over 40 years in about five minutes so this is this is not a place for us to judge this is a place for us to to learn from but did you notice did you notice how they self-identify as the Lord's people Do you notice that in verse four, how they self-identify as the Lord's people? It's honestly not something that they've done very often up to this point. So it's actually not an identity issue for the people, but it's a misunderstanding of what that identity means for them. And identity is important, right? But if you don't know what that identity means for yourself, it carries far less significance. Verses six through eight, let's continue. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and they fell face down and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of that rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. Listen to, listen to the Lord's words to Moses, verse eight. Take the staff and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to the rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of that rock for the community so that they and their livestock can drink. Honestly, when I first kind of read this story again this week, A little part of me just did not anticipate this to happen. I don't know if you're the same way as we read this right now. Um, This is not the reaction that I expected from God. So they're at the end of the 40 years, and it's almost like God has kind of given them this redo, right? He's given them the ability to take the test with the answers right in front of them. And what happens? They grumble and they complain. they cry out once again that they wish they were back in Egypt. Once again, they're not trusting in the character and the promises of God. And what picture do we get of God here in this moment of the story? I think in all honesty, I was anticipating another you stiff necked people kind of moment. I was, I was anticipating, all right, another 40 years. But the the picture of God we get here is one so full of grace, so full of compassion. Uh, Imagine this. Imagine this. They are almost there. They are almost there. God has given them another opportunity to believe in his promises and to believe in his character. And they don't. This picture of grace, I I don't think we can fully, fully imagine what God is feeling and then what God is doing. This moment in this story was absolutely wrecking me this week. God, he does not say another 40 years. He does not say, okay, you don't want the promised land, you're never going to get it. He sees the people. He hears the people. Instead of giving any consequences, he tells Moses and Aaron, you know what? Go and give them water. Go and give them water. In fact, I see that he longs. He longs for his people to see the promised land. He can't wait to see his people drink from the streams of that water. He can't wait for his people to eat the fruit from that land. He can't wait for his people to finally be in a land that they can call home. I think he longs and yearns for them to be in this promised land. Is this not just this beautiful picture Of God's grace. This beautiful picture of a God who keeps his promises. And then we see Moses and Aaron. And I think this is a picture we can learn from as well. There's no telling. There is no telling how many times Moses and Aaron had heard the complaining, had heard the grumbling, had heard the cries of the people. They had heard this whining over and over and over again. But Moses, he doesn't lash out at the people. He doesn't rebuke the people. He doesn't react in anger on social media. Like, what, what, is God, what does he do? What does Moses do? He immediately, and without hesitation, he rushes into the presence of God. He rushes on his knees, face down, into the presence of God. And we can't brush by this. We can't just acknowledge that this happened in this story. Because I think we have something significant to learn from this moment. With everything swirling around us as a culture, with everything swirling around us as a nation, I think we have something really significant and important to learn here. Just the importance of falling on our knees and seeking the voice and seeking the face of the one who is ultimately in control. This is, this is, not, this is not my typical reaction. And I kept learning this week, there is something significant about what Moses and Aaron do here. I think we see something about Moses' friendship with God. Moses, he was referred to as a friend of God. And I think we see what Moses has learned, what he's learned about his relationship with the Father. Moses, he doesn't come rushing into God's presence, kind of informing him about everything that's going on. Uh, Because I think he has learned that God's always watching. God's always caring for his people. God always knows what to do. God always and ultimately knows what his people need. And so Moses, he comes into the presence of God. He humbles himself in the presence of God. And he waits to hear from the Lord. We see his friendship with God. We see what he's learned from God all these years. And the result is that the glory of God appeared to them. The glory of God fell upon them and told them what to do. And, and I think, honestly, like the response of God here even surprises Moses. I think Moses is a little bit surprised by what, by what God says, by what God instructs them to do. So verse 9, we'll kind of, we'll find that out. So Moses, he took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded him. He and Aaron, he gathered the assembly together in front of the rock. And Moses said to them, listen, you rebels, must we bring you wa- rock, water water out of the rock? <laughs> listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Listen, you rebels." Must we, must I bring you water out of this rock? And then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land that I give them. Like, wait a second. <laughs> It's like, did, did that really just happen? Like, in a lot of ways, like this doesn't really seem like it was Moses. The, the, the friend of God, the intercessor, the humble servant, just acted in total, total disregard of what God had instructed him to do. It's like Jekyll and Hyde in this one moment. But I know like, None of us can relate to what happened here. <laughs> none of us knows what, what it's like to worship on a Sunday morning and then treat our spouse or our roommate like they're our least favorite person two hours later. Like None of us can relate to, to, to what's happening here with Moses. Just ask my wife. She's seen the good and she's seen the bad, like probably both this morning. But what exactly did Moses do? Like, what, what did Moses do here? So I want to look a little bit closer at his words and his actions. God had asked them to gather the assembly together, okay? Most commentators believe that this rock was, it's not just a rock, like this was symbolic of God's mercy. This rock was symbolic of God's grace and his goodness, which he was getting ready to pour out upon the people. So up to this point, Moses is doing pretty well. And then comes this line, then comes these words. Listen up, you rebels. He says, must I, must I bring water out of this rock? And I don't know how much you can remember, kind of about our journey through Exodus and Numbers up to this point. But this sounds a lot more like God here than it does Moses. Up to this point in time, it it was God who had been uttering these words. And so we kind of find ourselves here in this moment where Moses is using the same language and words. He's kind of finding himself in the place of God, not as an intercessor for God. He's actually taking on the role of God himself. So his words reveal a lot to us here. And his actions, how how did God, how did he ask Moses to bring water from the rock? He says, speak to it. But what I found so interesting is this was not the first time that Moses had been instructed to bring water out of a rock. We didn't look at the story, but back in Exodus, Moses is asked to do the very same thing. And he's asked specifically to hit the rock with his staff. This first time, God says, do it with a staff. And he's very specific this second time. He says, do it in a more gentle manner. He says, I want you to display my power even more in a way that brings about even even more faith. He says, I want you to speak to the rock. Just gently speak to the rock. And I think we get this picture of God's just gentle nature versus Moses's frustration. And I'm not exactly sure, like, why. I I don't know the full implications of these differences. One could speculate, though, uh, that even after years of walking with God, after years of walking with God, there is still a place of deeper intimacy with the Father. There is still a place of deeper trust available between Moses and God. Even, even a man like Moses in his late 80s has room to grow in his friendship and trust with God. And I was reminded this, this week that though we may have done things a certain way for a really long time, it may not be what God is still asking us to do or it may not be the way that God is asking us to do it. It's, it's so important to keep an open ear in an open mind to the ways and the will of God. But what happens? God, in his graciousness, he still pours out the blessing upon his people. So despite Moses' disobedience, right? Despite Moses' disobedience, God still pours out the blessing. It says, the water gushes, and the community and the livestock drank, and I love the imagery we see here in this one verse. The people are parched, the people are complaining their kids are whining, and water gushes out. Can you imagine? Like, imagine with me this moment. In the desert, complete despair, and water begins to gush out. I just kept imagining people literally dancing in the desert, splashing, kids jumping in puddles. The livestock is now quiet because they're lapping up the water. And there's this moment, I this beautiful picture of what God's blessing looks like when he pours it out upon his people. In this one sentence, I think we see this amazing picture of God. Then we see this really severe punishment. <laughs> one that in all honesty, in our human understanding, if we're just being honest, does not seem fair. I had that thought this week. Like this, this really doesn't seem fair to Moses. And I think we just have to name it. But I was confronted over and over and over again this week with the fact that as much as I try, as much as I will my way into thinking, God revolves around me. God's ways revolve around me. God's thinking revolves around my way of thinking. It doesn't. And I I think this is a hard truth that I was just being confronted with this week. That in fact we are designed for our lives to revolve around Him, our ways of thinking to revolve around His ways of thinking. So I do not fully understand the punishment. I don't. Uh, I don't. I don't know. I don't know if I will. <laughs> in all honesty. And let me just say this right off the bat, because I think it's important. Is. You and I do not have to live in fear <laughs> that if we mess up once, after 40 years, we might lose our salvation. That would be a really horrible way of looking or thinking about this story. That would be really horrible, awful, bad theology. So don't, don't look at the story and, and, and live in fear. In fact, we see in chapter 27, this is awesome. Even though he's not going to go into the promised land, God takes Moses with him up to the top of a mountain to see the promised land, to take in the promised land, to be one of the first to, to just be in awe of God's promises. And then when Moses dies in Deuteronomy, God does Moses' funeral. I don't know about like epic, but I mean to have God do your funeral, and that's pretty pretty freaking awesome. What you do see, though, what you do see, though, is, is how important obedience is to God. We begin to understand the weight and importance of obedience as God's people. No matter how much we think we might know how to do things and the manner in which to do them, it's essential to look to God his way of doing things, and the ways in which he wants them done. And we have learned throughout the whole Old Testament, we've looked through our study in Exodus and Numbers, that this entire story, this entire story is pointing to Jesus. So this entire, this entire book is, is pointing, pointing towards Jesus. And you have to understand this story in its context in light, in light of Jesus. And we know that the Son of God came to this earth because of our lack of obedience, right? Our inability to be perfect. Jesus came so that there would be no condemnation. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So the grace of Jesus erases any question of our salvation. Because those that follow him are seated in heavenly realms. This, though, this reality, in no way lightens the weight or the call to obedience. It is because of the grace and mercy of Jesus that calls us into a life of obedience, right? Because if we trust God and we trust his ways, it will lead us into the way everlasting. That's what the word tells us. But my question is, do we truly believe this? Do we truly believe this? And although we all face kind of these big moments, or maybe will face these big moments of obedience like Moses, I was just reminded this week, Moses's life was marked by obedience in the day in, day out decisions of his life. It was the small daily acts of obedience It was the small moments of obedience in his relationship with God that allowed him to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. It was the small daily acts of obedience that allowed him to stand at the Red Sea and split it wide open. It it was his small acts of obedience that led him to a place where he could call upon the Father to bring bread down from heaven. Obedience begins with the day in, day out decisions that leads us to those big moments. I really think if, if we want the supernatural leading of God in our life, we have to walk in everyday obedience to God's ways. And as I just turned to Jesus this week, I kind of kept asking him, okay, like, what do you say about obedience? Like, Jesus, what do you say about o- obeying you? What do you say about a way of living? How do you tell me to live my life? One of the first places I turned was uh, the Gospel of John. Gospel of John. Jesus, he's talking about the promise of the Holy Spirit. And this is what he says. Listen to this. He says, anyone who loves me, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. This is what Jesus tells us. He says, my father will love them and we will come and make our home with them. How important is obedience to Jesus? He says it's a reflection of our love for him. Some of Jesus's very last words, Matthew 28. What does Jesus say? He says, all authority, he says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And for whatever reason, I typically just kind of end there, but he keeps going. He says, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded them. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded them. So if it's important enough for Jesus to include in his last two sentences here on earth, I think I think it's pretty important. He says, teach them to obey my commands. So what are the commands of Jesus? What are we called to obey? Where are we called to obedience? And my mind and my heart kept being drawn to the Sermon on the Mount, which is really cool because it's in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus actually is fulfilling the old, old law. He's fulfilling the old law, and this is is what Jesus says. This is what he's saying about how we should live. I want to invite you to close your eyes and listen to these. Unless you're writing, you can write. This is is what Jesus commands. He says, shine your light before others, that they may see, see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. He later says, he says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them, the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, give them your coat also. But I tell you, but I command you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that they may be children of your Father in heaven. He says, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you, truly I command you. They have received the reward in full, but when you pray, go to your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Jesus, he says, do not store for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. He says, but store for yourself, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. These are just a few uh, of the commands of Jesus, the the things that we're called to obey, the way that we're called to live. But I'll go back to the question I said at the beginning. Do the ways of God, do the ways of Jesus really lead to life? Does obedience to Jesus' way, does obedience to Jesus' way of living really bear fruit? Is it good news? Is it good news that God delights in obedience? In Jesus, he actually starts the Sermon on the Mount where we read all those things with the Beatitudes. And he, he kind of instructs, he says, hey, here's, here's how you should live. And here are the results of living this way. I want you to listen to these. Jesus' words, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or, blessed are those who are humble. Blessed are those who are humble, for they will receive the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Be people who mourn, for they will be comforted. Or, another way of reading that is, blessed are those who embrace the gift of, of grieving, for they will feel the closeness of God. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Another way of reading it is blessed are those who act and speak in a gentle manner, for they will be blessed. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Or... Blessed are those who desire justice in our world, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Or blessed are those that show compassion, for they will receive compassion from God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are those with pure intentions, for they will experience God. Blessed are the peacemakers, the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who make others around you more whole, for they will be called sons or daughters of the Most High King. And lastly, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those whose approval is not in the sight of man but in the sight of God. For you will be with him forever. Does it bear fruit? Does it bear fruit? You will receive the kingdom of heaven. You will feel the closeness of God. You will be blessed. You will be satisfied. You will receive compassion from God. You will experience God. You will be called a son or daughter of God. You will be with him forever. Let's pray. Father, there is in no way, shape, or form that we can live out this way of living without you. There is no way that we can be people of peace people who are humble, people who are gentle, people who are kind, people who show mercy, people who are pure with our intentions without your help. You call us into this way of living. You call us into these ways of obedience, but we cannot do it without you. We cannot do it without you, Father. We need your strength. We need your help. So God, in all of your grace, in all of your goodness, uh, that we see you just pour out upon the people, we're just asking for you to pour out that grace upon us, pour out that goodness upon us this morning, God. We know it's from a place of grace and from a place of understanding of your mercy that calls us into lives of obedience. So Father, will you increase our awareness Increase our awareness of the grace in our lives. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. It's in your name that we gather. Amen.